Hi guys, thanks for tuning in to this week's Not The Top 20 podcast with George Ellick and Ali Maxwell talking things EFL. Absolutely blown away by the weekend's action across all three divisions where ugly wins were very much the order of the day during Storm Chiara or Ciara. Mm. I've heard a few different versions. Well, someone's getting it wrong because it's definitely Chiara, isn't it? Chiara. It's definitely Chiara, isn't it? Isn't a great sentence, is it? No, but no. You, I'm now doubting it. Welcome, George Ellick, to the podcast. Great to have <laughs> you on. Hi. We're talking about the EFL. Before we get into specific results from the EFL weekend, I wanted to just uh, really illustrate one thing that sums up how crazy these leagues are this year, how tight everything is, and how much we have to look forward to in the last third of the season. We are two thirds through. Uh, in general. Hugh Davis, great friend of the pod, doing our research for us, tweeting over the weekend, no team currently in the EFL is averaging two points per game. Now, we often talk about two points per game as the benchmark for title winners. That's, of course, 92 points over the course of a season. That's normally enough to do it. But if you look in previous years, there's always someone across the 72 who is averaging at least two points per game, normally two or three teams, but none this time around. So a lot of flawed teams going for titles, which is making for a very entertaining title race. And George, the headline fixture in the championship involved two teams going for the championship title in Nottingham Forest and Leeds. We knew that it was going to be a big atmosphere under the lights at the city ground. It certainly didn't disappoint. What happened? Why did it happen? What does it mean? Nottingham Forest won 2-0 in a game that they totally deserved to win. Coming into this one, both teams had lost their previous match. Forest had been beaten 2-1 at Birmingham and Leeds had obviously, of course, uh, lost that game at home to Wigan. And that Wigan game was just another instalment of this series of Leeds. And it was the, it was the episode that we've all been waiting for, basically. It was the episode that we've seen before. It's Leeds dominating and then losing a match. Whereas this was maybe an episode we haven't seen before because this wasn't a hard luck story at all. This was a lead side travelling to a Nottingham Forest team who who you and I have both often, I would say this season, maybe warned against getting too excited about. Um, there's certainly merits to what Sabri Lamushi has done in terms of creating a side who are very hard to break down, uh, who have often been a team who, especially when ahead in matches, have been good at closing them out. And it's important to note here that in their last three games, they've played against Leeds and Brentford, two of the of the division's best attacking sides and kept two clean sheets with minimal fuss mm. as well. Uh, but having said that, I still expected this match to go Leeds' way in terms... I think I even said in the last week's Monday show, like mm. we know that Leeds are going to dominate this game. That was totally incorrect because despite the fact that Forrest went 1-0 up after half an hour and maybe you'd expect them to sit back on their lead... It was, a, it, was, it was a level game in terms of, 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 of shot count. In terms of actual quality of the chances created, Forrest definitely won it. More issues with Leeds in terms of Kiko Kassia being beaten as, at his near post yet again. Sammy Amiobi, getting, Sammy Amiobi getting the first goal. But just without Calvin Phillips in the middle of the park, they struggled to c- control the game. Pablo had an absolute stinker, mm. um, which doesn't happen too often. But just in the final third, Forrest looked really dangerous. And... Credit to Joe Lolly for again being a thorn in, in Leeds' side. Lewis Graben had a fantastic game all, all around the pitch as well, coming deep to link up play effectively. And this was just a, a match that I didn't necessarily expect to see. I, I don't personally think that uh, we've been doing Forrest a disservice because there's still issues surrounding their... I was going to say, how much humble pie are, are we eating right now when it comes to forest is it the whole pie is it half of a pie it's it, it's not the whole pie for me necessarily i think there are still some shortcomings in this side and i'd still be really surprised if they um finish in the top two but in terms of of my expectation for this match it's all the pie and all the cream mm. because and it almost forest- makes you think the way that they dealt with this game, the, the game plan, the execution thereof, the, the, even even the atmosphere when we're talking about potential playoff side. Now, this is if they don't reach the top two, you, you'd, you'd put a few ticks in the box, wouldn't you, based on their performances the last few weeks in games against teams around them, just in the way that they're able to, as I say, set up in these individual matches against teams for whom they need to create a, a pretty strict game plan in order to, to get over the line and then fulfilling that 
fulfilling Lamucci's plans uh, and getting results, it, it would stand them in very good stead, I think, in a, in a playoff battle if that's what they end up with. Um, I thought that in transition uh, the last few weeks, they've noticeably improved for me. They've, they've, we've spoken about them all season, how as a, a team in possession, in lengthy possession, uh, there, doesn't, there hasn't seemed to be a huge amount of thrust for this Forest side. And there was certainly that poor run of form that they went through uh, at the beginning of December where it felt like uh, it felt like teams were finding it easier to defend against them. But that certainly hasn't been the case in recent weeks, this incredible run that they're on. Uh, the most points in the championship since Christmas with 20 points from nine games. Uh, the next best, Derby and Fulham with 17 from eight. So uh, well clear in that sense. And it really has been both exploiting the talents of, of Joe Lolly and him hitting some serious form, making sure that they play in a way that allows them to get him the ball in the space that he needs to really do uh, the, the business, so to speak. And we've mentioned Graben's uh, very high conversion rate, but of course he missed a remarkable chance in that game, which was, I mean, it was jaw-dropping stuff when he, when he put that shot straight at Casilla, um, but it didn't seem to phase them. And, and, you know, with one shot on target from Leeds, albeit a free header from a corner that was poorly defended, otherwise they looked they looked very comfortable. They looked, uh, they looked very assured. And as much as credit goes to Sabri Lamucci for, uh, again, proving himself tactically to be right up there in this division, uh, I think credit also has to go to the individual defenders, the goalkeeper Bryce Samba, who we know to have been one of the best shot stoppers in the division so far this season, uh, saving that Cooper header at the second time of asking. But a back four in Ribeiro, who took quite a long time to get fit and to really become established as their left back, Matty Cash, who, as we know, only converted this season into a, a right back proper uh, Worrell, who had been out on loan at Rangers last season, who's always seen as a talented young defender, but had never quite established himself at the heart of Forrest's defence. Uh, and Figueredo, who I think it, at different points in his Forest career has been seen in a few different ways. Um, at worst, quite a sort of hot-headed uh, defender, maybe not the best positionally. So um, huge credit to all of those <clears throat> players. Of course, they have uh, Samba Sao in midfield, who gets a lot of credit uh, from Forest fans. And Ben Watson, who is who's sort of having something of a, a twilight at the end of his career at the base of this midfield. So a lot to like. I, I think that's where the credit here has to lie. And, and it's to Sabri Lamucci because we often talk about managers who turn attacking lineups into kind of better than how they would look on paper. Players who haven't necessarily done it before. We've said it so many times about Bielsa and Leeds. And with Forrest, it does feel like that back four you've just mentioned, you know, Ribeiro, Worrell, Figueiredo and Cash probably shouldn't be as comfortable against this lead side as they were on Saturday. So so Lamucci takes credit for that. And just another point as well, and, and what a brilliant homecoming goal for Tyler Walker to come off the bench, having not scored for Forrest since back in 2017-18. I'm pretty sure if you told him then that he would be sent out on loan for two consecutive seasons and wouldn't score another goal for Forrest after scoring a, a couple of goals then, he'd have been pretty gutted. So to come on in what is the biggest game Forrest have had for a long, long time, and to be set free in the 93rd minute and mm. score in front of your, your home fans and celebrate with them. Um, I've got a feeling he'll be buzzing to be back now because it's looked for a while like he might not get another chance there despite his uh, his goal-scoring exploits in League 1 and League 2. A crumb of comfort for Leeds fans who I don't imagine are listening to this uh, podcast. But just in terms of looking forward from now to the end of the season, uh, I did take a look uh, because clearly Forrest have proven themselves, as we mentioned in recent weeks, against the top teams. That's encouraging for the rest of their season. In terms of fixtures remaining, uh, I do think it's games against bottom half teams that will be quite quite crucial. I have this feeling, and it's not fully backed up by the stats, but more of an eye test thing, that... It's, it's almost in games that Forrest are expected to win where they uh, underwhelm relative to in, in games against the bigger sides. They've got an excellent record against the, the top seven this season. Um, and, and look, they have put certain teams away down the bottom of the table, certainly at home, and they've got a few home games coming up against Huddersfield, Stoke, Charlton, uh, QPR before the end of the season. But those are the games where the pressure is going to be on them in a much bigger way. The pressure is going to be on Lamucci to come up with an attacking system uh, in those games that, that maybe doesn't rely on, on transition uh, and, and they might have to work a little bit harder, uh, which seems an odd thing to say than against Leeds. But um, it'll be interesting to see if, if they can maintain a really high record against those teams 
uh, where they'll finish. Leeds have actually got the best record against bottom half teams uh, of any team in the top seven at the moment, 2.27 games. They've picked up in their 15 games against bottom half teams at 1.82 points for Forest, uh, for Preston and for West Brom. So there is a bit of a discrepancy there. And Leeds have got the most games left against bottom half teams. They've got nine games remaining uh, to Forest's seven. Fulham and Bristol City have only got five games against the bottom half left. So that might be something to keep an eye on. I think that's just the one other thing to point out is naturally fans are going to be pretty sensitive to this kind of stuff. And especially with Leeds fans having lived through these second season dropaways. I'm not going to use the word that other people are using. It's understandable, but there's got to be an understanding from Leeds fans that this is quite clearly the worst run of form of the season. And, you know, the this defeat and this loss is probably their worst performance of the season. That's not to take anything away from Nottingham Forest. However, they are still in the top six. They're still currently second. Um, they're still a side who have a manager who I think deserves their um, their patience at the very least. And they've got a player in Calvin Phillips who I would say is probably, especially on the evidence of, of Saturday's game, the most important player in their side. Tuesday's going to be very difficult against Brentford. There's no denying that. But even if they come away from that game with no points, I, I mean, I still would say that we're going to see, there's going to be another time between now and the end of the season in the 15-odd games we have left where Leeds are going to be back to their dominant best. It's just riding out this bit of a storm that's going to take some, yeah, just going to take some patience. Surely Forrest's best win of the season, that the same could possibly be said for West Brom winning away at Millwall in the midst of the storm yesterday. That's certainly what Steve Maidley, uh, the West Brom reporter for The Athletic, uh, said about that performance from from West Brom. We both watched this game, George, I think beforehand I said couldn't see West Brom getting anything. Uh, That was based on, I suppose, just a quite a lazy assumption that Millwall, for a, uh, I suppose, more of an intangible reason, would cope better with horrendous conditions. It absolutely was not the case. West Brom easily coped better with the conditions. Millwall didn't, to my eyes, particularly change or adapt their normal game plan uh, to, to, to sort of move with the times, I suppose, to move with the conditions, whereas it felt... To me, anyway, that West Brom had more so than ever uh, a much more intense press, perhaps thinking that controlling the ball, first touches are going to be a lot bigger, controlling the ball a lot harder. What was noticeable in the first half was how quickly they were in to every tackle. And, and given we'd spoken on going up, going down about their midfield to Sawyers and Livermore looking a bit leggy, uh, it was noticeable that a lot of the work was done higher up the pitch um, by players like Kravinovic and Pereira, who, again, are the sort of players that stupid people sometimes think wouldn't fancy it, wouldn't fancy games like that. That is certainly something of a, of a stereotype when you talk about going away to Millwall, uh, when you talk about the sort of weather that we were experiencing yesterday. Both of them absolutely immense. And I was just so impressed um, with this statement from, from West Brom, from Baggies, who had beaten Luton the week before, um, a, a comfortable home win against the poorest side in the division. But otherwise, we knew had been on the back of a really poor run of form. They're now four points clear at the top of the table. Uh, yeah, the point you make about the Sawyers and Livermore and, and the, the change in approach from West Brom rings very, very true. Uh, despite this being a game where, you know, away from home against a side who have been a very good nick under Gary Rowett, we've often seen this season, whether it's in possession or outside possession, uh, West Brom rely on Sawyers to be the man who controls the ball and they rely on Livermore to be the foil for that, the guy winning the ball back and recycling it very quickly. Sawyers has had by far and away the most touches and the most passes for West Brom this season, which is not the case on on, on uh, yeah. yesterday's game on Sunday. Kravinovic had, I think, attempted 59 passes compared to Sawyers' 39, so nearly, you know, well, 20 more. Yes, and, and in, in Steve Maidley's piece, he does point out Kravinovic... His heat map, so to speak, his touch map, showed him playing a lot deeper than he had been exactly. in previous it, it was basically a three um, with the other with uh, Robson Carnu, um, Pereira, and Robinson playing kind of as a three up front. It was more of a four four three three, and that's interesting because you know for me, I, I think Sawyer's is that player you want controlling the game, um, but it obviously worked this time around. I mean, an absolutely unbelievable stat I've got for you here, which I've been keeping under my hat all day. Wow, West Brom had twenty nine shots in the game. <laughs> 
29. 29 shots in the game. Everyone who, except for Sam Johnson, everyone who set foot on the pitch, West Brom had a shot. Okay? <laughs> Including yeah. all three subs. Incredible. Millwall had seven shots. What? All of them Jed Wallace. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> George. Well, talk about adapting to the conditions. You can see there uh, a serious game plan. That, and that, if, if you're Gary Rowett, that is going to just... It's going to sting. It's going to be really galling to think that you've created you've created a team who, who certainly have been so impressive in the way they've gone about their business. And there's no denying that Wallace has been the star man. But to be taken apart like that at home and to be so one-dimensional going forward and so reliant on your flair player to do anything when you're facing a side who have just got quality all over the park. There was a massive gulf between these two sides. And you mentioned the conditions. It was interesting, I thought, in the first kind of six or seven minutes, a couple of times, uh, Millwall were really caught out by by the conditions, whether it was, I think it was Cooper, kind of almost having an air kick, which let them through uh, kind of three on two, whether it was um, passes not reaching the the desired target. And that just seemed to, to breed... Uh, nerves across yeah. the whole we- um, Millwall. They looked a lot less line. structured exactly. than I was expecting. And I expecting. think there's one or two instances where they made those mistakes. One or two instances where West Brom picked up on those mistakes, and that just seemed to set the whole tone yeah. for the match. The only thing that could have changed it, Wallace had one very good chance where he blasted over the near post at one nil, and that would have made it a very different game. But this was this was a side who've in West Brom who've really struggled in the last few weeks, getting back to their. Well, I was going to say back to the dominant self, but this was almost more dominant than anything we've really seen so <laughs> yeah. far from them this season. Yeah, brilliant. Dara O'Shea playing right back, uh, centre-back by trade, I believe, but uh, his first goal for West Brom and a good performance at right back. I thought uh, he wasn't challenged maybe by O'Brien, who I thought was poor down the left for Millwall, Mahoney as well when he came on. Um, so I'm going to give a bit more credit to Semi Ajayi and Carl Bartley, the, the centre-back pairing, who dealt very well with the considerable aerial threat of uh, Matt Smith. Uh, and then equally with Bod Varson uh, and Bradshaw when he came on as well. Excellent clean sheet from from uh, West Brom, the league's leaders now. And what do we think that means for Millwall? Well, I think uh, I've noticed that, it or? as always, there's been a bit of hand-wringing on social media from some Millwall fans and then the sort of the backlash to the backlash that I'm always normally on the side of, which is, hold on, we're 10th in this division. Mm. We really shouldn't be complaining. It's quite clear that there's a gulf of class as it should be, given yeah. the squads available. Um, they, I think before that, I don't know exactly what it is now, but they'd lost the fewest games, the joint fewest games in the Championship since Gary Rowett took over. So uh, for me, not a huge concern at all. Just a big game against Fulham tomorrow night. Yeah, they're going to need a special Millwall-type run from here to reach the playoffs. I think it's unlikely, um, but it's absolutely not out of the question. And that, and that doesn't, as much as I was disappointed because I was expecting a, a different performance from them, uh, I'm not exactly, um, yeah, I'm not crying my eyes out if I'm a Millwall fan right now. Uh, we've got a few more games to get through. Blackburn, nil, Fulham won. This was one of those games that, and results, I suppose, that on paper doesn't leap off the page. But the reaction, certainly, from the Fulham fans at full time, they felt like they'd seen something notable here, something special in this Fulham side. There's a, a stat that Colin Murray used uh, on the Quest show that they haven't experienced a game that's had more than one goal in it uh, for about three months now. So every Fulham game is tighter than tight. And this clean sheet, I think, is significant against the Blackburn side unbeaten at 10 uh, at home at Ewood Park before that. Michael Hector's getting so many plaudits for the way that he has stepped into this Fulham back line. And you might remember when we were talking about Fulham's defence for the first half of the season, it was accompanied by a lot of words like, not nearly as solid as expected, um, unconfident, uh, poor on the ball quite often. Uh, they didn't look strong in that way that you, you recognise strong defences. And with Hector at the back, all of that's changed, really. Just so much more assured, that defence. Uh, and the goal was Joe Bryan crossing low to Mitrovic, who scored on the swivel. And it showed the best bits of those two players as well. Uh, Mitrovic a cut above really for this level in terms of an all-round striker joint top scorer in the league with Watkins but also Brian who going forward consistently delivers goodness from left back and I note that that's now the fifth time Brian has assisted Mitrovic this season Uh, five assists is the joint best in the league between an assister and a goal scorer interesting any idea George a little quiz for you who the Prior warning. Who the other most lethal combination is, uh, it is not 
obvious whatever so i will not be having a go at you if you get this wrong it is not obvious or whatever i like that um, <laughs> whatsoever is it elias and to Vyman? it's not elias and to Vyman, but i can see why you'd think that given elias assist stats it's actually jacob brown to connor chaplin of barnsley wow. and i imagine most of those came in that month-long spell where chaplin scored sort of seven in seven or something so um that is a yeah, it's a it's a fertile partnership, Brian and Mitrovic. Brown. Do you reckon you and I are a fertile partnership? It's not for me to say. I wouldn't <laughs> want to comment on that. Um, but they also restricted Blackburn to barely anything. So credit to to Scotty Parker and his I, defensive unit. That's that's a big point here. Um, and You've I, had a big I'm, swing on Scotty Parker. Well, I've banged this drum a bit recently. Well, I think Parker deserves credit. I wouldn't necessarily say I've had a swing on him because they were so bad in the second half against Huddersfield. But travelling. Well, I mean, I say they were so bad. They, they they conceded so many decent chances and had Rodak to thank. So I think coming off the back of that performance at home against against Huddersfield, where they were dominated at 3-2 up for a whole half of football, and to go to Ewood Park, where Blackburn are very, very comfortable and are very, very good at home, to put in such a professional performance, not just going forward where they were the better team, but also restricting Blackburn to, to really anything. I think they had four shots yeah, barely at all in the game. Um that is a, a really good turnaround and you know Parker himself deserves credit for that. Tell me about Brentford 3, Middlesbrough 2. That's your third appearance on BBC Radio 5 Live. And as someone much smarter than me on Twitter said on Saturday, you're really putting the 5 into 5 Live. <laughs> the third time you've been to a game for them, reported on it and seen 5 goals scored. Maybe they'll just give me my own segment called the 5-goal like, the game. <laughs> that would um, be good something like Mambo number 5 but they might come up with a better name but look we're spitballing here t- t- <laughs> tell me about the game Brentford uh, winning a great you know, just a great spectacle it was just a, 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 a great championship game um, it will, Brentford weren't at their best uh, it's important to point that out straight away I was pretty impressed with Borough who continued to improve under Jonathan Woodgate it must be said uh, despite playing a part in the second goal um, given the deflection I think the new centre-back uh, Makudi from St Etienne looks really really assured he's a big presence at the back alongside Fry he's good on the ball and I think he's going to be someone who'll improve them uh, although he, as I say he did deflect uh, Mbomo's shot for the second goal and just it, Breeze went at their best I thought that both De Silva and, um, and Jensen were both below par Middlesbrough and McNair and Savile were pretty good at kind of shutting down those midfield options uh, as ever. It was the front three who dominated for, for, for Bees going forward. Ben Rama had one of his quieter games, I would say, but he was still very impressive. Uh, and Mbomo and Watkins obviously got two crucial goals. The first coming from a set piece, a very scrappy goal for, for Julien Janvier. Um, and this is one of those games for Brentford where they weren't at their best, playing weaker opposition at home, but they found a way to go in front, in front three times. Fletcher missed a very good chance at two all. And that could be a bit of a sliding doors moment, you'd think, for Brentford's season. Because if, if they lose this game 3-2, then suddenly Tuesday becomes... Uh, uh, well, Tuesday looks very, very different. And they've got a bit of a free hit at it now after mm. after what happened on Saturday. So, by no means vintage bees. Definitely a vintage match. And, yeah, I probably came away from it more positive about Borough than I did before I came. I'm uh, quite enjoying... Very excited to go back on Tuesday. Slowly but surely, I feel like Ashley Fletcher is, is sort of changing the narrative... Uh, surrounding him which I'm really pleased about it's probably four years now since he had a loan spell at Barnsley uh, and did very well in their promotion under Paul Heckingbottom uh, winning the the EFL trophy that season as well and looking like a you know a mobile uh, quite physical young striker who who could finish well The, the story always went whether it's true or not that he was above Rashford in the Manchester United youth strikers pecking order and it was only because he was out on loan that Rashford got his chance that season you might remember how much he burst onto the scene with some goals in his first few uh, appearances so it's always been quite an interesting one to follow their paths Um, Fletcher clearly has struggled since then firstly at West Ham which was a a strange move uh, to be quite honest with you and then really to break in at Middlesbrough one season there in his first season he, he didn't make it much into the first team was shipped out to Sunderland where he struggled as everyone did that season in Sunderland's championship relegation last season still very much playing second fiddle to Asomba Longa 
But in the last few months, undisputed starting striker for this Middlesbrough side and in their best moments has been at the forefront. Uh, he's got five goals in his last nine games. So by no means absolutely setting the world alight, but looking much more confident, looking much more of a handful uh, and doing well against Brentford on Saturday. Really excited for the Brentford Leeds game on Tuesday night, which we are going to. Uh, we'll try and do a bit of instering from the game. It might be the last time either of us are at the current Griffin Park before they move to the new stadium. So uh, at NTT20pod on Instagram is the place to go for some emotional uh, under the lights pictures uh, tomorrow night, Tuesday night. Wigan lost 2-1 to Preston. Preston moving into the playoff places uh, after Bristol City fell at home 3-1 to Birmingham. Um, Preston with a, a professional performance, I would say. The goal conceded from a set piece which we've mentioned many times is really Wigan's great strength. Dunkley's ability to win balls from set-piece situations is almost unrivaled in the championship. So not going to mark Preston down too much for that. Otherwise, they were pretty comfortable. They carved out three very good opportunities. Two of them scored and one of them missed by Scott Sinclair. And all three of those opportunities were the sort of slick passing with... Uh, good vision and good execution that that smacks of a, a top team. Now, Preston don't always play like that and they don't always look that good going forward. There were times in this game where it wasn't quite coming off, but the passing of Pearson and Johnson, uh, the movement of Barkhazen and Maguire and Sinclair, it, it was impressive stuff. And I, I hope to see a bit more of that from Preston uh, against tougher opposition. Uh, it'd be great to see them reach the playoffs. They're, they're kind of at the moment where well, they're level on points with at Bristol City, George, they lost at home to, to Birmingham on Friday night. Now, not ideal for a team who'd won five of their last six games all to nil. Uh, they really did chuck this one in, given that they were they basically started with a 1-0 lead, gifted a goal after 40 seconds. I mean, how did they lose that one 3-1? Birmingham deserved it. That's the long and short of it. There's no... I don't buy into the idea that you know they were ahead too early, Bristol City. To be one 0 up in a home game, having kept three clean sheets on the bounce, is a brilliant position to be in. But you know, we've mentioned on the podcast before, and on other mediums, um, I did a proper thing about it on on going up, going down a couple of weeks ago. At Bristol City, were you know they were living a bit of a blessed life. They were playing against sides consistently in in QPR, uh, Barnsley, and the Reading game, where they won all three of those games one nil. But all three sides created chances, and on the balance of play. Certainly should have uh, shouldn't have drawn blanks and, and probably should have got something out of the game. So I kind of felt like this was always going to come, and it came against a, a Birmingham side who have just done something pretty similar against Nottingham Forest, going one nil down against a promotion side and coming back to win it two one. So they deserve immense credit for those mm. two comeback wins, which is you know, both are going to have a bit of a say in the top six. Uh, it looks like this season, but for Bristol City, they just looked completely pedestrian didn't really seem to know how to answer Birmingham's low block after they went ahead at all. They didn't really create any chances of note, um, especially when you've got Lee Campengol. You'd think you'd try and force him into making a couple of saves. They couldn't really even do that. And Got an assist, Camping. And it comes, yeah, brilliant kick. Uh, and you know a fantastic goal from from Lukas Stukovic as well. Yeah, I thought, uh, I, thought I thought the spine of, of Birmingham's side were really impressive. There's mm. always a lot of focus on Bellingham and a lot of the stuff that he does is jaw dropping for someone of his age. Uh, I think quite often, and it happens with players like Masengo as well, when they're that young playing, uh, you, you do really you probably amplify the good things by about ten, and, and you probably don't really focus on on any shortcomings. So I, I wanted to put Bellingham to one side, I think, and focus on the spine of the team. Roberts, after what was a, a terrible mistake, after 40 seconds, then played excellently for the next 40, uh, 94 minutes or whatever it was. Um, Clark Salter, alongside him, nothing to do with the goal, just put in a very assured performance and is enjoying being a, a first-team member of this Birmingham side and, and is sort of starting to look like... He could, you know, fulfil some of the potential, some of what's expected uh, of him within Chelsea, where he's very highly rated, having never really done so out on various other uh, loans. But also Sunic and Gary Gardner, I thought, were brilliant as a midfield too. Uh, Gardner, in particular, has been on some real form recently, which I hadn't necessarily seen coming. Uh, and of course, Djukovic and Hogan up front. It, I don't think it should be a surprise that they're a good 
strike partnership. Everything sort of seems to make sense. I, I do think Hogan looks like he's lost a little bit of that acceleration that really stood him stood him out to be one of the top uh, strikers in the league a few years ago, and he's obviously had problems with injuries. But you know, Djokovic is the dream to play up front with for any striker, and it looks like with their combination of skills, they're going to be more of a goal threat in the second half of the season. So um, really impressive win for them. Other wins, George, Huddersfield 2-0 against QPR. Really simple win this uh, from the looks of things for Huddersfield. I note that QPR have only got six points in their last eight league games. So uh, a bit concerning how they've really sort of slipped away. They're down in 17th now. I mean, it feels like the Naki Wells transfer is one that's just going to be quite bad for all parties mm. because you've got QPR who creates so many chances which Wells was enjoying and having such a prolific season and then you've got him moving to a Bristol City side who in my book struggled to create many chances and you're going to be expecting him to get on the end of very little after they lose Brownhill so I, yeah, I don't think that Nick Wells is going to be the answer for Bristol City and I can expect given they don't have another goal scorer in their ranks because they're not taking Jordan Hugel as being a, an acceptable replacement for Wells it won't be a surprise to see QPR continue to struggle to, to, to score. Yeah, brilliant second half performance that was uh, from Huddersfield after a fairly even first half. Uh, the Cowley brothers continue to steer uh, the Terriers away from the relegation zone. Hugely impressive the job they've done there. Luton-Cardiff as well was a strange game. It, it was only 1-0 to Cardiff this one, but certainly to start with really helter-skelter stuff, a very open game, something that we're coming to expect from Luton games. The problem that they're having is... They're very open at the back and teams are putting them to the sword. But given how how often they seem to get into decent areas themselves, Luton, they really don't execute well enough in the final third. Whether that's down to a lack of quality or a poor system, it, sometimes it's difficult to really differentiate between the two. But uh, for me, Cardiff, uh, you know, I don't want to slag off any team after picking up three points, but uh, there's certainly a feeling that they could be an outsider for the playoffs. I just think they're still way too open. Uh, they're not at all the controlling Cardiff that we expect uh, after their promotion two seasons ago. They 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 don't really convince me. I must admit. Um, and and while Lee Tomlin keeps winning them games or or getting them big goals or big assists at, at big times, I just don't think it's quite enough for me to see them punching their way into the playoffs. Stoke beat Charlton three one. Sort of both teams following a similar theme. George, from recent weeks, Stokes' improvement and Charlton really sliding down the table now. Uh, they now are in that position just above the relegation zone with a, a small buffer. Um, <clears throat> but it has been disappearing by the week, which is uh, a, a really difficult situation for them. How impressed are you at the moment with Stoke City? They made pretty light work of this game. It, I would say it's hard, given Charlton's current uh, form, it's pretty hard to get overexcited about any side who carves through them. Yeah, um, 16 points from their last eight, Stoke, so it has been a... Of course it has, but there's, you know, we've had some some shockers chucked in there as well. Think back to the Derby game where they lost 4-0. Yes. Um, this was a very good time to play Charlton for Stoke because it banishes memories of that. Uh, their fans will have enjoyed a home game seeing them kind of tear through another championship side pretty much at will. Um, but as I say, Charlton, I mean, that Charlton result the other day at Barnsley is just so big because you feel like if they hadn't got that win, they would be um, sinking without a trace mm. now. Um, but they still have that four-point buffer. Wigan's um, back-to-back victories has kind of come back to, to earth with a bit of a bump after their home loss against Preston, as you mentioned. So I, I think that's going to be, it's going to be really tight. Um, I don't know whether or not Barnsley or Luton can get themselves back into the into the mix. I think if either do, it'll probably be Barnsley who put in another good performance on the weekend without getting um, the win that they maybe deserved. Uh, but I, it, it's really, really hard to see Charlton pulling away uh, from the bottom three. It's hard to see Wigan pulling away from Charlton with that four-point gap. So I think it's going to be Charlton and Wigan pretty much down to the wire with Barnsley hoping to spoil the party. OK, last but not least in the Championship... Six months and one week, which is 187 days, 13 away games, and Derby finally won one. Uh, Ryan Conway, who's the Derby writer for The Athletic, uh, picking the bones out of a, a very pleasant away trip for the Derby fans, which they've not had for a long time. It, it was, a, 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 to be quite honest, a pretty even game against Swansea. Ryan makes the point, George, in his piece that 
they're not dissimilar as teams, Swansea and Derby, both in terms of the way that they look to play uh, and also some of their deficiencies as, as well, I suppose. But Ryan's focused really on two players, both Tom Lawrence there from the beginning of the season and often disappointing, and Wayne Wazaruni uh, taking a look at the impact he's having as two guys who sort of really made the difference in this game. Yeah, this is the first away win that they've had since they beat Huddersfield 2-1 away on, on opening day. And on that day, Tom Lawrence did absolutely everything for Derby. Yeah. He was he was action man. I mean, it, watching that first game of the season, you thought to yourself, this is going to be Tom Lawrence's season. And I Breakout guess, season. I guess you can argue it has been his season, but not necessarily for the right reasons. Um, so, I mean, as ever with Ryan's, Ryan's piece, if you want to find it now, it's called Lawrence's Range and Rooney's Growing Influence, Why Derby Finally Won Away. And as with lots of Ryan's stuff, it's got some really nice um, kind of past maps and graphics, uh, a bit of a, like an analytical slant, I guess, to a, a usual match report. It seemed like Swans were giving Rooney a lot of time on the ball, and, a lot of chance to play those passes. But that, I, I think that is the key to, to what's changed with Derby, is they just were unable to exert the control that Koku would want them to in midfield for so long. They didn't have that midfielder in the middle of the park. I mean, Tom Huddleston, I guess in terms of pure ball-paying ability, was the closest thing they had to it. But, you know, he's not Wayne Rooney, and Wayne Rooney is proving now that put him alongside a runner in Dwayne Holmes, and you've got a, a player with the vision and the technical ability to really dominate games. Um, it's funny that you mentioned, uh, you said it was a level game. I saw on Ryan's Twitter feed in the press conference afterwards that um, Steve Cooper said that it was a game that Swansea dominated. Ryan said that he disagreed. Um, Swansea certainly had more shots in the match but that doesn't necessarily mean anything but the, the interesting part to this I think well it was kind of Lawrence's threat from range that was the but difference I think, right? I, I think that's it and I, think I we, don't think anyone's pretending that Derby with, but with Lawrence you've got a guy who should be just that he should be the player who I guess he is a bit of a luxury and he's going to impact games when he does something fantastic and he's probably not going to do it particularly often but we seem to be in a position a few weeks ago where or a few months ago where Lawrence was expected to do that every game mm. and if he didn't do that every game then he wasn't doing his job right. There was a spell a couple of years ago when he was on loan at Ipswich where he was so important to them having enough points. I think it was to stay up that season. Mm. And that was because he was, you know, he was the flair player. He was the player where like, if we're going to get out of trouble, it's going to be him to do it. And that's what's happened here. That He's far less involved in the game because it's up to Rooney to pull the strings in the centre of the field. He doesn't have to drop deep anymore in order to pick up the ball from, from those areas. So yeah, I mean, I... I I really like the way that, that Ryan in the piece has, has um, put that down into words because it seems like that balance between two, probably Derby's two class acts, especially uh, in the final third or at least in the opposition half, has uh, made them so much better balanced and enables them to play the kind of football that Koku wants them to. 17 points from their last eight games, Derby. So they're on a decent run and that's kind of more than just a run, I guess, at this stage after eight games. Uh, someone in the comments of Ryan's piece on the Athletic site said they reckon promotion could be possible. So I thought I would just try and uh, see what I thought. <laughs> I reckon 76 points could be the magic number for sixth spot. And Derby to reach 76 points would need, would need 32 points out of 15 games to get to 75. So that's basically, well, it's about 2.15 points per game. It's pretty much what they've done over the last eight games. But they need to do that for another 15. And as mentioned at the top of the show, no one in the EFL is averaging over two points per game uh, at all in the full season. So it's going to have to be a hell of an effort from here. And it would be uh, an exceptional achievement for Philip Koku, but also for Wayne Rooney, you'd have to say. Uh, Ryan's piece is on The Athletic. He covers Derby uh, up and down the country, plenty of away games for Ryan where he's not been writing positive things if you want to read more from Ryan from an array of other football writers The Athletic is the site to sign up to and if you use our URL that is if you visit theathletic.co.uk forward slash NTT20 you can get both a seven day free trial and 50% off going forward we also do a podcast for The Athletic called Going Up Going Down three episodes Listen in. Listen to it. Some great feedback so far. Mm. So if you haven't listened to that, uh, it's an end of the week special. Search for Going Up, Going Down on your podcast platform. Please do give it a go because we're quite proud of how it started, if we may say so ourselves. And we've been grateful for all the feedback so far. So get on that. We're going to move on to League One now. Time for League One now. Plenty going on, as you might expect, not least at the top of the table. 
where just like the championship, it feels like we've got six or seven, possibly eight teams who are still very much in with a chance of promotion to the championship. None more so than Rotherham United. They are league leaders. They are favourites for promotion. They are a team that have won eight games in their last nine in this league, which is remarkable given how tight uh, it is, how little there is between so many of the teams in the division. Uh, they've got 29 points from 15 away games this season, which is just glorious. They got a big win at Lincoln on Friday night, a Lincoln side who have their own pretty impressive home record. Uh, and it's worth remembering that Rotherham, I think, in the championship last season, won just one game away from home. So uh, a, a, a big difference in, uh, in experience following Rotherham away this season, and happily so. The winning goal really summed them up recently. Uh, a ball into the channel, great pace from Vassell to get there. Brilliant, you know, immediate attacking intent, looking to deliver. Uh, they don't waste any time Rotherham in possession, that's for sure. They look for the, the space, they look for the opportunity and they try to strike. Uh, and it was a brilliant cross headed in by Matt Crook. So uh, another example of this Rotherham side developing into uh, the, the potential title winner, to be quite honest. A, a squad and a system in perfect sync at the moment. And in Paul Warren, a man who, you know, even when they weren't doing well results-wise in the championship, it felt like he was often being respected for the way he the way he manages his team. And, and I don't necessarily mean tactics. I don't even necessarily mean on-pitch stuff. I mean the way that he runs the club as the manager of the team. Uh, his emotional intelligence seems very high. As a motivator, he seems to get every last drop out of his players. And uh, it, it's been brilliant to watch the last few months. Same can be said, George, for Peterborough United, you have to say. Although potentially not for you uh, on the weekend. As you saw the updates roll in from London Road, where Oxford went and left, having been humped 4-0 by a posh side who have won five wins in a row, 16 goals scored, and they've beaten Oxford, Ipswich, Wickham and Rotherham in that spell. Yeah, they're rampant. Um, it must be frustrating, I think, if you're a Peterborough fan, that they had that mid-season blip because there's no reason why they shouldn't be you know, far clear of Rotherham. Uh, this season because when they're at their best and they've been at their best on two separate kind of occasions this season two batches for the first eight weeks of the season after the first couple of games and then for the last few weeks they are unquestionably the best team in this league you know there's even Pompey with their dominance in games over a period of time I still think when Peterborough are clicking and at their best with Ivan Tony up front I don't think there's anyone that can live with them mm. um, Smodix is the addition of Smodix is just um, been four goals and three assists trans- in six games. Transformatory. I mean, if you're a Bristol City fan and you've just you've recruited both Moisa, who I know is now not <laughs> doing much. George has got his head in his hands right now. And then Sammy Smodix, and you just you just refuse to play them. Like how? Talk to the microphone. Just when you've got when you've got Smodix, who is playing in a side for Peterborough, who are not playing below a Championship level. I mean, they are literally, but in terms of actual performance level, you know, if they. If you played, if it was Peterborough against Luton tomorrow at London Road, Peterborough would be favourites for that game, mm. and rightly so. I don't understand how, if you're Lee Johnson, you can take a look at Sammy Smodix and think to yourself, like, you know what, like we're selling, we're selling our best player, our, our, our you know midfield creator, obviously a very different player to Smodix, Brownhill. How can you not think that having someone with that, you know, the intelligence of his passing, the way that he moves, the way that he uh, takes that space in the final third? How he doesn't think that that could be worthwhile to him, I, I would just not understand. Um, but enough about Bristol City. We've done them already. Um, with Peterborough, this is a side who I think, you know, even as an Oxford fan who's pretty uh, positive about our chances this season and pretty positive about the, the quality of player we have in our squad, even when Nathan Thompson was sent off, which is awesome because he's got history with Oxford anyway, mm. but even when that happened and I, that notification came through when I was sitting at Griffin Park, I didn't for a second think we were going to come back into it. I didn't for a second. Like They're a dominant side who are going to catch us on the break, who are going to be very good in terms of, of, of dropping in and being comfortable um, out of possession as well. I mean, Tony at the moment is doing the job of, of two up exactly, top anyway. Exactly, um, and, and Tony's a class act. So I think this Peterborough side, you know, just in the same way, um, it, it's very easy to get caught up in things when teams are in the middle or towards the end of a dominant run and there is no question in my mind that Peterborough will not 
just do this till the end of the season. They 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 won't. They Imagine won't. if they won fifteen games from now to the end Four of the nil. season. <laughs> they won't. There, there will be times fairly soon where Smolix is going to stop creating and Tony's going to have a couple of games without scoring. That's just the way football works. Um, but in the meantime, they can probably get enough points on the board the way they're going for that not to really matter too much. Yeah, Southampton. Uh, sorry, Southend rather at home in midweek looks like a banker, but. A potential knee injury to Frankie Kent, who's been so important at the back for them. I was going to say we focused on the attacking players a lot, but it is worth crediting, I guess, Darren Ferguson for the for the formation change, really, that, that helped. Well, that was the, the catalyst, I suppose, for, for this run, getting uh, all these players in a system that suited them. But also that defensive unit, Kent, Beavers, Thompson, uh, defending like Beavers at times and uh, doing really well in that regard. So... Um, Thompson will be suspended. Kent will be injured. It's a good time for Southend, I think. But uh, but you'd still expect, wouldn't you, a, a heavy Peterborough win. Um, such a confident front three at the moment. Dembele playing really well too. Sunderland beat Ipswich 1-0 at the Stadium of Light. It was a proper game of two halves, this, uh, in, in, the, in, in the proper cliched way. Uh, I don't know... Although I had the game on a screen, it was hard to tell. And there's so many other games going on when you're in at Quest. But... I can assume that wind must have been a factor here. There must have been one end where it was really difficult uh, because in the first half, Ipswich were all over Sunderland uh, and Sunderland couldn't lay a glove on them, really. They were thrilled to be nil-nil at the break. And the second half was the complete opposite. Um, Sunderland peppering Ipswich from the very, very minute that the game restarted, uh, hitting the woodwork a couple of times, an absolutely vintage Chris Maguire goal, the one, the sort that you've seen many, many times before. Uh, 10 goals and 6 assists in the league this season for Maguire, which is a, a seriously impressive return. And it's 5 clean sheets in 6 for Sunderland as well. So that was a very welcome 3 points for them. I think still a lingering feeling that they're not seeing their team dominate to the extent over 90 minutes than, than they would perhaps uh, want if they're to get up into the automatics. But uh, as I say, 5 clean sheets in 6 is going to go a long way to uh, to improving their record. As for Ipswich, they dropped out of the top 6 for the first time since August and that's three straight defeats um, I said on quests on Saturday night and I'm sticking by it if you haven't beaten a team in the top eight the teams around you in 11 games uh, you're not a top team yourself and, and that's kind of what we're seeing from Ipswich dropping out over the last few weeks How do you think their team and squad compares on paper to the rest of the top 10 without taking away any pre- notions of the likes of you know Cole Skuse and Flynn Downs just on what you've seen how would you rank them because um, I think they're basically a mid-table team yeah I mean I think Wolfenden's good I would say yeah mid-table if we're talking 12th that, that seems like a bit of a drop from what I'd expect but certainly I mean A this has changed from the start of the season and your perception of players does change a lot in the short term based on performances sometimes that's system based sometimes that's manager based and and that can change but I know exactly what you're getting at and I and I agree with you that it's hard looking at that squad now and saying these this is a top top league one squad especially when we're talking about other teams and the amount of quality that they have and especially I mean Ipswich fans listening to this will say hold on a minute we were top of the league a few weeks ago but the reason those points that were picked up in the first four months of the season were based on conceding very, very few goals. And at the time, that looked unsustainable. And that's how it's turning out now. Um, I just cannot believe that Paul Lambert is just... I don't think he should necessarily be sacked. That's not what I'm saying. But he well, is he now... He's got, got a three and a half year extension. Well, that's what I was going to say. He's now sitting on a three and a half year contract. So, you know, Ipswich Town as a football club is wedded like welded to to Paul Lambert he's not going anywhere so you've now got to wonder does he think this is a team and does he think this is a squad who's good enough to get promoted because if not then what is the rebuilding job in the summer I mean is, is it a complete clear out because you've got to change something and you can't change the manager because that's going to cost you a few million pounds and knowing the owner like we know him mm. that's not going to happen so I, I mean if I was an Ipswich fan I'd be you know, there's a, I guess there's a chance they can turn the form around and get and solidify in a way to get themselves back in the top six. Fine, but in terms of a long-term process to rebuild the football club, we often say that relegation back to League One can be good because it gives you a chance to to rebuild and revitalise before returning to the Championship for, for clubs of this size. I think they've regressed further since coming down. Well, 
There's a team in second called Wiccan Wanderers who probably think they're slightly the forgotten team right now uh, in in the League One promotion race because they're still second in the table in the automatic promotion places. I mean, because of the, the strange scheduling this year, you're actually looking at Coventry and Portsmouth having a better points per game record uh, than Wickham but Wickham have got the spot at the moment they've got the points on the board and they won 3-1 against a, a, a really poor Bristol Rovers side who showed flashes of what Ben Garner's trying to achieve but still struggling in I think in the teething process of, of moving away from Graham Coughlin's style and into Ben Garner's style uh, Wickham's first half goals doing the damage three goals scored by a 32 year old a 36 year old and 37 year old uh, absolutely wonderful stuff and uh, you know actually the continuation of a very good um, home record this season for Wickham uh, although the focus is on how well they started the campaign they have maintained that home form in fact the best home record in England uh, outside of Liverpool Liverpool's is obviously 100% in terms of available home points taken but Wickham's is 81% and the next best is uh, Portsmouth with 76% so that you know that stat from Chairboys Central excellent Wickham blog great follow on Twitter for all things Wickham uh, but Wickham's home form still keeping them in the hunt uh, one of the teams that have got, also got a great home record in League One but won away this weekend is Portsmouth notable because it's now nine wins in a row in all comps um, George I think Winning away at Tranmere or just beating Tranmere in general is probably not the the nod for us to go crazy about Pompey. But in terms of the run that they're on, you know, I mean, we're Club. past we're past the stage of sitting up and taking notice, aren't we? Club record um, wins, consecutive wins now for them in the league. Twenty nine games in all competitions with three defeats. Uh, as you say, winning away at Tranmere has about as much relevance as the draws that we normally ignore at the moment. Um, but yeah, I think if anyone in the top six is listening to this and hasn't realised yet that Portsmouth are probably the team that you can say, well, if we finish above them, we're going to go up. Um, now is the time to probably recognise that. Nice. Happy days. There were three really scrappy, close wins as well in League One. Fleetwood beating Wimbledon. Dons, I think, will feel quite hard done by here. Certainly in the first half, they really came out firing and, and didn't turn that dominance into anything particularly tangible, anything particularly significant in terms of the score sheet. Um, Fleetwood getting over the line with a Paddy Madden winner, which I feel like is something we say uh, a couple of times a month. Uh, Coventry just about got past Bolton. I mean, you know, there's there's one thing squeezing out wins when playing badly, which always seems to get talked about a lot at this time of year, but you're also playing badly. So um, let's hope that for Coventry that home performance against a, 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 a struggling Bolton side is not something that's going to be repeated, but Morosi and goal for Coventry w- was excellent. And then Blackpool beat Southend 2-1. Again, a home win against Southend. Nothing to shout about, but Blackpool had been on, on such a poor run. They played five league games away from home in a row, which is, I don't understand how that can happen scheduling-wise, but there we are. Um, they, they'd played five away games in a row. They hadn't won any of them. So back at home, back uh, with three points and notable for me I banged on about it on going up going down on Thursday they signed 10 players in January Blackpool so for the rest of the season I don't really know what to expect from them I mean half of their team on Saturday were new signings Taylor Moore at the back was excellent on loan from Bristol City uh, and Dews- Dewsbury Hall George uh, sounds like a countryside mansion mm. but it's actually a young midfielder on loan from Leicester oh. uh, and he had a good performance as well for Blackpool <laughs> League 2, George, League 2, uh, 23 goals in 12 games. I'm going to start with that. Now, we want to talk positively about the EFL as much, again. as much as we can. But Chiara did make it tough for the League 2 sides this weekend. Uh, one team that didn't struggle, Colu, Colchester United, 3-0 up at half-time against Plymouth and seeing it out. Biggest game of the season, wasn't it? <laughs> biggest game of the season was what I mistakenly said. <laughs> On the Quest show. Thanks for reminding me that. I think I was put off by Tony Pulis sitting uh, sitting to my right. Uh, biggest game of the day in League Two. Mm. And a, well, as I then corrected myself to say, the best first half performance I've seen this season from a League Two side. Colchester scored three, hit the woodwork twice uh, and held out in the second half. And I mean, full cred, I think they'd say, the youngsters. <laughs> Who'd say that? I don't oh know. Oh my God. Pulis is still rattling that me. That is amazing. You can do a TikTok this afternoon. 
Um, it, this was yeah, this was a good performance from Colchester. Theo Robinson uh, in amongst the goals again. I think we've all seen the the clips of um, of Tom Eastman's outrageous bits of skill out on the wide right. If you haven't, then go to our Twitter page at NTT Twenty Pod to see it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, for Plymouth fans, I'm sure they're going to leave this being despondent and gutted about losing three 0 It's it's natural to blame your own side rather than acknowledge when you've been beaten by a better team but from a neutral looking on this was just Colchester bouncing back from um, having their unbeaten record uh, cruelly taken away from them last time out by putting in just a dominant performance against the former side in the league and and with Swindon dropping points coupled with taking three points off Plymouth themselves this fires Colchester into the mix Mm. I mean if we had Plymouth down before this game as a side who who could challenge that top three. We have to say Colchester are there. The only issue for them is they're the only team, along with Swindon, who've played 32 games. Crew and Exeter both have one game in hand, with Plymouth still holding two. Big key for me with Cole U is how good they are defensively. Uh, in terms of goals conceded per game, they've got the second best record. Cheltenham still stand out as the best defensive team in League Two. But, you know, as someone who loves to go through the stats, it's often uh, one thing to, to look at clean sheets, percentage of games uh, in which you've kept a clean sheet. Uh, and, and those can be really, really good. But I remember Mike Holden, who runs the Fox Punter uh, ratings and tipping service, who we've had on the pod a few times, who I think's always had some really interesting ways of viewing football and his own interests within the game. I find uh, very interesting to hear him discuss them. Uh, he loves following managers, uh, listening to the language that managers use and, and how he perceives their personality to impact their management style and I remember him once talking about Kenny Jacket who often mentions not just clean sheets but what he calls zeros and ones essentially the idea being that because of the randomness of football because um, you know there can be a heavy deflection or there can be a freak goal or just a moment of absolute quality that you can do nothing about conceding a goal in a football match is is is, is going to happen and so for Kenny Jacket, it's not just to focus on we've kept X amount of clean sheets, but actually zeros and one. How many times have you conceded just one goal as well as uh, keeping a clean sheet? And I had that in mind looking through some league tables uh, earlier uh, today. Colchester, again, standing out in that regard. They've kept a clean sheet in 11 of their 32 games. They've conceded one in 14. So 25 of their 32 games, they've just conceded zero or one. And that's a reason why they're able to put together that 16-game unbeaten streak. By no means one of the best attacking teams in the division. Uh, But when you keep the score down to that extent, uh, it means that you're always in the game. They've conceded two on seven occasions, and they've never conceded more than two goals this season in the league. So really impressive defensive resolve that's only bettered by Cheltenham, who beat them in all the stats. Uh, Goals conceded per game. They beat them in the zeros and ones as well, I'm afraid, 26 uh, times for Cheltenham. So something that I noted, which I think is uh, is something important about Colchester's uh, game. The, the most important thing for Crew, or the real standout stat that you can't ignore, is that they've gone behind in 18 of their 31 mad. league games, uh, which doesn't seem to stack up with a team in second place in the table who have won 17 of their 31 games. Um, but... It doesn't seem to matter because, of course, they've got such a good record coming from behind. That's what they did on the weekend at home to Oldham. They left it till the 97th minute and Charlie Kirk with his sixth goal of the season to go with 13 assists, which is, well, the sort of numbers that... He won't won't be playing League Two football next year. Yeah, the sort of numbers that point to an opportunity higher up in the pyramid, whether with Crewe in League One next season, should they win promotion, or with someone else. I guess the psychology of this is interesting we would say with our sort of very um, unsentimental hats on that if you can see the first goal in whatever that is, 60, 64% of your games, it's not going to be sustainable that you will keep picking up the points to, to that extent. Um, I would I would stand by that. I would say it's a great thing for us to wax lyrical about, but it's also a concerning thing. Massive. And I know that David Artel will probably think the same thing. Yeah. There, there must be an extent to which there's a there's a, a personality trait, there's a psychological thing within this team and, I, and I'd be interested to know how David Artel has gone about building that sort of character. Uh, it, there's been a lot spoken about how much these crew players have played together throughout their whole lives. So many of them have been mates since they're about 10 years old 
and they've played over a thousand games on the pitch with each other. The likes of Kirk and uh, Lowry and Ainley and Wintle. Maybe that's a factor. It's I hard think, to say. <clears throat> I'd say they're also using some serious amateur psychology. Um, <laughs> that's all it can be from us, sadly. I think they're kind of un- intangibles when it comes to the crew side itself themselves. Why it happens, but I think both the opposition will now know about Crew's record from coming from behind, which in itself will probably have an impact in terms of where your defensive line is, how you're defending, and safe in the knowledge, well, not safe, unsafe in the knowledge that the team you're playing against have this remarkable record of coming from behind. And also just in terms of, of, of the crowd. Like if you're if you're if you are supporting a side that you know consistently comes back from losing positions to get to get points you're not going to leave mm. and you're not going to stop believing. And that Whereas there are many teams we can think of who when they go behind, the home crowd out of there. Exactly. turns, Turn. exactly. size. So I'd almost that. say that the two, again, I have no more knowledge on this than anyone else about most things. <laughs> but I would say that probably the opposition, the impact on the opposition and the impact on the atmosphere and the environment will be pretty significant given this, given this run. Exeter got a 2-1 win against Stevenage. This is the latest in a line on this pod of, of wins probably not to shout about. Not a vintage extra performance by all means. Um, that, but a good response, I suppose, to dropping out the top three. It feels like they've been in the automatics all season. But having lost two in a row, they were outside those places for the first time in a while. And this win puts them back in. Uh, so credit to them for that. Stevenage just make me feel quite sick in general at the moment. Uh, everything about... Everything about what's happened uh, to this team, I think, uh, that we saw last season mount a late playoff challenge. Uh, the the style of play, the recruitment of players has been strange. The performances of the players has been poor. The style of football has been miserable. The uh, managerial appointments have had absolutely no impact. And uh, it's, it's all just pretty grim. Um, they're at the point now, Stevenage, where they have 22 points from 32 games, which in a league like this is is almost unforgivable, really. Uh, it's, it's yeah, as I said, they're making me feel a bit sick at the moment, Stevenage. So I'm going to move on and tell you, George, Port Vale, true or false, Port Vale are currently only outside the playoff places on goal difference. True. <laughs> it is true. I know it's true. Isn't that amazing? I, every Monday morning I memorise every table. <laughs> Of course. Uh, and then you read the amateur psychology book that you've got on, on your bedside table. Yeah. yeah, 48 points, Port Vale. Same as Bradford uh, and same as Cheltenham, albeit Cheltenham have played two games fewer. So still some work to do, but if Vale are going to be going to a Northampton side that hadn't, had not lost at home in any competition since the 5th of October and grab a 1-0 win, then uh, that's going to put them in very good stead. I think the, the thing I noticed about this Vale win, apart from the fact that it was a real smash and grab and Northampton had plenty of chances to score. Uh, Scott Brown in goal was excellent, but also absolute constants of Vale this season have been Nathan Smith and Leon Legg at the centre of defence. But Smith's been injured for the last few weeks, a good young defender that he is. And Sean Brisley stepping into the, the breach uh, and performing really well. It must be difficult to step in when I think those guys had played every single minute. Um, Brisley had been sort of really scratching around for the odd minute or two off the bench, but uh, a big performance from him. And uh, yeah, for Port Vale, very, very positive. Basically everything that's happened since Norman Smurthwaite, the old chairman, left the club has been very positive, apart from... Papa Smurthwaite. <laughs> apart from Tom Pope's uh, various Twitter misdemeanours. Uh, otherwise, it's been a great season. It, should so, be, it sounds like a bit of a cartoon, Smurthwaite and Pope. I'm sure there's something we can do there about... We, let's look into it. Okay. We, we, we're trying currently, George, quite hard to get... Uncut Yems commissioned by, by Netflix. So we'll focus on that, I think. Before. I noticed. I think it would be because someone heard about Uncut Yems that Sky Comedy very quickly re- uh, released a new programme called The Righteous Gemstones. And I'm assuming they're doing it because they think that we will therefore ask for a poster with The Righteous Yemstones in order to promote their programme. I just want to say we're not sellouts no. like that. We're not going to do that. Absolutely. As much not. as we love our friends at, at Sky Sports, we won't be. Sky f- Comedy. We're not doing that. We won't be falling for that sort of uh, sneaky guerrilla digital marketing, I'm afraid. I think it's on Friday night at 8. We know. (laughs) (laughs) We know our worth. And we had a a few, as we did in Championship and League One, George, a few scrappy, scraped wins. Uh, Not good spectacles, but good results for Walsall away at Forest Green, 
who really are falling away. Uh, Newport lost to Cambridge, so that's two wins in a row for the uh, for the caretaker Mark Bonar. Uh, and it's interesting because all reports are that Cambridge are quite close to appointing uh, a chap called Simon Rusk, who is something of a, a Nathan Jones mould in the sense that he's uh, current head coach of Brighton, under 23s, 38-year-old, with all the uh, all the badges, as you can imagine, all of the um, licences, uh, bright young thing, and uh, Cambridge seemingly quite close to appointing him. But if Mark Bonar, as a caretaker, is going to be picking up results, then you wonder whether they might just wait until the end of the season um, with, with little risk of relegation. Another scrappy win, Scunthorpe against Cheltenham, good victory for another caretaker manager, uh, this time Russ Wilcox, Scunthorpe again. Another team that panicked after a, a, a run of poor results, but who really are well safe from relegation and really just need to get to the end of the season and start making their, their summer plans nice and early. Um, that's it from us. An enjoyable Monday podcast. The sun is just going down. We are just thinking about going to the pub uh, after a busy weekend of... I think we are, aren't we? Yeah, we are going to the pub. A busy weekend of work for George with BBC Radio 5 Live, or 5 Alive, as my grandmother used to call it. And not, not before you're on first, though. Not before I'm on first. I'm going to be on 5 Live on Wednesday night, guys. Uh, if you can't get to a TV to watch any midweek action, uh, I will be... In the studio with Mark Chapman, uh, sort of around the grounds, there'll be various reporters. There's quite a lot of championship action that night, and we'll be reviewing Tuesday night uh, and going through the action live on Wednesday night. So I'm really excited about that. Please make sure you subscribe to the Going Up, Going Down podcast. Uh, We are very confident that you will enjoy listening to it if you haven't already. Uh, This week, we're going to have a hot take from George. We're going to have an EFL rewind from me and the usual... Uh, match previews and club in focus Uh, really good stuff thank you for listening have a great start to the week and we'll talk again in a couple of days